Finance and Leadership, FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Paul Linton, FTI Consulting's Chief Strategy and Transformation Officer, as he shares valuable career advice. This conversation took place during Caliber's summer conference in a fireside format, which then opened up to Q&A. So near the end, you will hear questions posed by some of the members. Thank you once again, Caliber, for granting access to the audio. We will now join the conversation already in progress. And I mean, as we think about coming out of this COVID era, I mean, are there other pitfalls that we should avoid? I think that even when we went virtual, I'll confess that on a lot of calls, I may not turn my video on. And then I realized that in a way I was counting myself out mm-hmm. by not putting my video on. So now it's like, I'm on all my video calls. But it was something that actually somebody brought to my attention. They were like, Tilsia, I know that you were on that call, but your video wasn't on, why not? Mm-hmm. And it was because I got that feedback mm-hmm. that I realized that I needed to make some changes. What pitfalls do you see people doing or what are some pitfalls that we should be thinking about as we move forward? That, that is one of them, you know, not turning your video on. One, you know, because you're counted out, but I think also people don't see your expressions, your facial expressions. So one of the reasons I turn my video on is I translate information by my facial expression. So whether I'm understanding or not understanding or surprised or unsurprised. And I think I look for that in others as well. Oh, yeah, I can't um, play poker. <laughs> I cannot I play, play poker. poker. And I think there's another issue that's really important for younger people because I can look at them and if I'm explaining something and say, oh, explain that again, or it looks like they didn't quite get me. So I think there's a little bit of that as well. So I've had some of my team members kind of jump on teams and they're kind of in an unironed t-shirt that they bought from Old Navy eight years ago. You can get away with that. My CEO has done that too. But guess what? He's a CEO and he makes $7 million a year. <laughs> if you're a 22-year-old and you haven't gotten your first promotion yet, I'm not so sure you should be doing that. They might, may not tell you, but there is a judgment being made. It means you got to get up a little bit earlier and iron a shirt. You better get up a little bit earlier and iron a shirt. You're, you're going to be making some impressions if you're not professionally, professionally dressed. I think less so for the people in this room, but you know, certainly for some of the junior folks. This is one other one pitfall I think I even struggle with. There's always five things I'm doing and 10 things on my list to be done. So... On video conferences, it's very easy to start going through email, working on something over here to the side while you're glancing at the conversation going on over there. This is not my part of the conversation, so I think I can get away with doing something else. That will come back to bite us, I mean, me included, because you're not as keyed into some of the other parts of the meeting or conversation that may not be as important that day to understand, but may be important subsequent days or for subsequent decisions. So, and if, and if you're silent, somebody may just assume that you agree yes. because you didn't say anything. That's right. Meanwhile, you were multitasking. <laughs> you were multitasking. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I'm curious about if you have any specific habits or routines, whether it's a morning routine or an evening routine that kind of like sets you up for success when you get into the office. 
So when I, I left BCG almost eight years ago, I was probably 50 pounds heavier than I am right now because I traveled a lot five days a week and jump and get to a hotel and order a hamburger and fries and drink a beer at midnight and then get up six hours later and start my day. So I think one of the things that's helped me a lot is my morning routine is just getting up and exercising and that just mm -hmm. gets my day started, builds my energy and, and that helps me rush into the day with, with the right level of energy to get things done. And then I just usually spend the first kind of hour or so, I always have a bunch of emails, some from Asia or Europe or something that I have to kind of go through to just start catching up because they're already halfway or all the way through their day before I kind of sit down and get started on other projects or other, other work. Second part with a cup of coffee, which I have. <laughs> <laughs> that's always in my hand. So um, that's kind of the, the start to my, my typical day. Excellent. So I have a couple of other questions, and then I'll make sure I open it up for the audience as well. I certainly believe that leaders are readers. And so I'm curious if there are any recent books that you either read, go back to often, gift to other people. What would those be? Reading. So I'll be honest, I do audio books more than I read these that days. That counts. That counts. <laughs> but um, the one of the books that I think I gift the most often is a book called Cracking the Corporate Code. That's a book and it's based around the sto stories of, I think, 32 African-American executives. And they just talk about all the struggles and issues they faced in their careers, but then more importantly, how they navigated and the lessons they learned. And there was one story in there that resonated with me quite a bit. And it was an executive who was talking about something called the imposter theory. So it's basically you know, where someone who, if you looked at them or you read their bio, very strong, sharp, more than able to do the job. But if you kind of really ask them when, you know, when they had their guard down, they would say, I don't know if I belong here. Somehow, some way, got this job even though I'm not fully qualified. At some point, I'm going to do something and they're just going to figure out that I do not belong here because I don't have what it takes to succeed. So on the one side, fully qualified, internally struggling with whether they're able to do the job and feeling like at some point they're going to get kicked out. And it resonated for me because I felt that. So I, when I was hired at the Boston Consulting Group, we were about 50 people, and I was the first African-American hired there. And so when I joined, and they had a history of hiring lots of people from Harvard and Wharton and Kellogg School of Business, et cetera. And I was coming from University of Michigan. I was a public school kid from elementary school all the way through my master's. So never went to kind of private school, just always public school kid. So I'm like, black kid, public school kid. Here I am surrounded by a bunch of white folks who are graduating from HBS and and Wharton, etc. And I'm thinking, wow, somehow I made it in here, but <laughs> wow, you know, at some point they're gonna figure out I can't add. Um, you know, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna you know, use the wrong verb, or you know, I'm gonna write a slide that someone's gonna think is inappropriate, and then they're gonna toss me out of here. And that, I think, certainly my last, in my first kind of three, three or four years, you know, as I reflect, held me back. Mm meetings where I could, I knew my stuff, I had done my research, I had done my analysis, I had written the slides, I helped my, whoever the partner, whoever I was working for, understand what the issues are, got them prepped, and then I get in the meeting and there's a question that I could easily answer and I'm sitting back like, I can't open my mouth. If I open my mouth, they're going to figure out I don't belong here. And I'm sitting there quiet. And then I get out of the meeting and the boss turns to me or the manager turns to me and says, Paul, why didn't you, I mean, you prepped me on that. Why didn't you answer the question? That was a question you were more prepared to answer than I was. And that was an opportunity for you to kind of show people what you knew. Why didn't you do it? And I got labeled as kind of this introverted guy that could do the numbers and write the slides and outside the meeting room, great. Inside the meeting room, once you added more white guys, old white guys, he never wanted to talk. So that kept showing up on my 
reviews. And first level of BCG is a consultant and project leader. And both of those levels, you can kind of get away with not talking meetings. When you get to the next level, manager and then partner, you got to be able to talk in meetings because most of the time you are the senior person in the meeting. So they're like, this is going to be a problem for you. You got to fix this. And that's right around the time when I read the book and it really, really resonated with me. So that book was very helpful to me. You know, one of the struggles that one of the executives in the book faced that can be useful for someone I'm mentoring or a friend, that's the book that I hand off because I think it, has, it was very helpful to me and I think it can be helpful to others. Excellent. Excellent. And one of the other things I always, you know, like to know a little bit more on the personal side of folks when we have any kind of like fireside chat, I'm always curious about what are you passionate about outside of work? So the biggest thing is, and I think it was maybe another transformational moment for me. So a good friend of mine, maybe like seven or eight years ago, asked me, so Paul, are you working to live or living to work? And, and when I reflected on that question, the answer was I was living to work. I was just, you know, focused on work, 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 work. And then every now and then if I got dragged to something, I would go, but you know, my friends would twist my arm to let's, let's go here, let's go there. So I'm Jamaican on one side and then Gragwin on the other side. My wife is Jamaican on both sides, but lots of Caribbean roots. She had gone to carnival in Trinidad. So every February they have a huge carnival where you have parties and parades in the street, etc. She's like, you got to do this. So I went down 2015 carnival and I was like, yo, what have I, <laughs> what have I been doing to be missing out on this? What in the world? Like, I cannot believe all these people are down here having all this fun and I'm up in some meeting in, you know, Toronto, it's 20 degrees you know, with, you know, three coats on and treading through snow, and you got these people out in the street dancing, drinking, having a good time. Uh, so it's, it's, that's, been, that's been really, really good. I love it. So with that, I am, you know, I, I think it's a good time to just go ahead and open it up for questions. If there are any questions, I encourage you to go ahead and go to the mic. I had a question, the first story you told about going into the meeting or the coach coming back and saying you weren't on anybody's list. Did you get underneath the why? Because you thought you were doing good work. You thought you were kind of making the mark. Like, what was the why? Was it a fit issue? Was it the not talking? Kind of like we just talked about. But did you get under, like, what was the why that was stopping you? Yeah, so the why was a couple of the things I mentioned. I think while on paper I understood the process for getting to the next level, I didn't understand the unwritten decisions, conversations that were happening that would enable me to get to the next level. And some of my colleagues, you know, to their credit, were smart enough, or maybe their parents told them. I mean, my, my mother was a nurse, my father was a, like a dental technician. They never worked in corporate America. So either a friend or a colleague or maybe some of the firm sat them down and said, all right, you heard what they just told you about the promotion process. Now let me tell you how it really works. <laughs> and I had never had that, let me tell you how it really works conversation to understand how it really works. So, you know, the fact that senior partners, I didn't even know there was really the list, to be honest. Mm. Like every senior partner, if they have so much revenue, can sponsor like you know, one person, maybe two. The big senior partners can sponsor four, maybe five, the ones who are generating a lot. And by the way, one of the criteria senior partners were judged on was whether they are promoting enough junior partners. So they actually needed to have a list, you know, if, if you're generating a certain amount of revenue. So once I put some of those things together, then it was, okay, now I can be intentional about figuring out. And then, I mean, I had conversations around how do you get on someone's list and all that. But 
once I put all those together, like, okay, now I understand what I need to be doing. It's not enough to just have, be a strong performer um, for like four different people. Um, as a matter of fact, that's a detriment because then you're, oh yeah, he's number five on my list. He's number eight on my list. He's number seven on my list. If I, you know, if I can't get one of these other three people that I'm sponsoring, then I'll grab Paul. Not a, not a recipe for success. So I had to understand a little bit about how the, the real unwritten rules worked and that enabled me to figure, navigate through that. And I think, I mean, every organization has their unwritten rules, yeah. right? I mean, and I think that the promotion process can be different. The time spans are different. I know we're going through our mid-year process right now. Mm -hmm. And I have conversations with people all the time about the fact that if you're looking to get promoted this year, we need to have a conversation 18 months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like it's too late for me to have a conversation now about this. And so just even understanding like how it's laid out. And I always feel that as transparent as we try to be, different organizations try to be very transparent, you still want to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody that you really trust that can really tell you how does it really happen and also get a sense for how much support do you really have in the room. So my question is, can you share what skills you have used in your career to get you where you are today? And if you found that any skills were lacking, did you get feedback from your mentor, from your sponsors, and how did you develop those skills? I think the most significant one for me, so I mentioned earlier, I'm electrical engineer by training. So I always had the quantitative ability, and that has helped me. That's always been kind of my foundation. So I gave, talked about the story of the whole imposter theory, and I had made it to a level where, you know, I wasn't speaking in the room. I mean, I later found out if my quantitative skills had not been as good, I wouldn't have even have made it to that level because, you know, everyone saw me as lacking the extroverted speak up in the room, willing to talk even if, you know, you're the only black person in the room and everybody else was, you know, 50-year-old white guys. The, the quantitative strength really helped create the foundation and created some supporters. And from that, I was able to then work on that deficit of speaking up in the room, being comfortable talking about, first, you know, the what I really knew, so the work I had done, but then even taking the next step, which is being comfortable talking about stuff you kind of are familiar with or somebody else did, which was one of the things that you had to be able to do in that job. You had to be able, because the client could pick, give you a question that you had not researched yet, and they were like, so what's your perspective on X, Y, Z? So the old Paul would have been like, you know, frozen. I mean, I, you have to be able to get comfortable saying, okay, well, you know, I don't know the answer to the question, but I can tell you how to get the answer. Or based on my experience, I think the answer is this, but let me come back and verify that. And you'll find a way to answer things or, be, or get comfortable answering things that you're not familiar with. So I really spent a lot of time working on those skills kind of over the next kind of three or four years, which enabled me to get the next promotion. And I do want to talk a little bit more about strengths and weaknesses, because what I also find is that, look, we all have strengths and weaknesses, and I'm always thinking about, okay, are these weaknesses career limiting, that they're going to get in the way of me advancing, or can I team up with somebody who is strong in my weaknesses, and then we go and tackle the problem together? Mm -hmm. So there's also like a difference between what kind of strengths and weaknesses are we talking about as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And another thing on the weaknesses, great feedback that I got from also from the same partner. Um, and he said, look around the room or look whenever you're in a room with other partners, look around the room and figure out who's the best at that thing that you are weak at and figure out what you can take from how they do it and add to your toolkit. So I started becoming really intentional about watching partners who are great at you know, jumping into a conversation that they're not familiar with. I mean, so we'd have senior partners who they sell a piece of work, then they disappear for six weeks and they show up at a meeting and you'd swear that they were there for the last six weeks because they could <laughs> jump into any conversation, answer anything, direct the meeting. I'm like, how in the world? And so I just start watching their techniques and say, yeah, okay, I'm never going to be great at that, but there's some things there that they're doing 
that are intentional, like they've figured out how to do that. It's not like they were born with the ability to do that. And those are things that I can actually learn from and then add to my toolkit. Excellent. I kind of answered my question, which was the, the theory, the fear theory. I, I thought of it as the fear theory there. When I come into corporate out of the military, definitely did not understand the culture. Mm-hmm. And it was, you talk about not fitting in. <laughs> so it took a lot of practice and a lot of coaches and mentors. And that's what I was going to ask. Are there any techniques that you could recommend to folks who are in those, in that position? Uh, I mentor a lot of young folks in our mentoring sessions. For example, the speaking part, we do practices. Mm-hmm. When they tell me I've got a big brief, I've got to do this, so I'll meet with them and they brief me and I try to give them the you know, questions I think others would ask. Or Sometimes we even play stump the dummy, you know, just throw <laughs> questions, random questions, have them see how they respond. But are there any other approach that would be beneficial? And, and I'll add a little bit to that question too because yeah. I think also there's so much movement happening right now. Like my team tripled in size during COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So we've had a lot of new people come in. There's a lot of movement where people are either changing roles or changing careers altogether. So what are the things that strategically we should be thinking about the first 100 days kind of thing also? Yeah. So one of the things I did maybe more accidentally or actually or was forced upon me when I first started. So I mentioned I was the first black person in my office. There was this partner. He, for whatever reason, kind of set as a mission, he was going to make sure I was going to be successful. I wouldn't even know that he was checking in. I was on a, I'd be on a project. He'd be checking in with the people I'm working with. One of the things he started doing at, probably in my first year was I'd finish a project, you know, I thought when I reflect on it, I'd be like, how do you know I finished a project? <laughs> you know, I'd finish a project, get a call from him, he's like, send me your review. And I'd send him my review, and then he would read through it, and then he would call me up and say, Paul, okay, look, so what did you hear when they discussed this review with you? And I'd tell him, he's like, okay, got it. All right, now let me tell you what's not in the paper. Mm-hmm. And he would kind of read through it and say, okay, uh, I'll give you an example. Yeah, uh, we had this category of you know, problem solving and insight. And if someone wrote, he's great quantitative analysis um, and can do really complex analysis and get to the right answer. And he'd say, well, that sounds good, right? I was like, yeah, that sounds good. You know, I'm really strong in quantitative analysis. And you know, I was an engineer. And I was, like, okay, so what's not there is they're looking for insight out of that analysis. Mm-hmm. That's not on the paper. So you do all this analysis, you understand the numbers, but the client's paying you for insight, which is to get to a recommendation. Why isn't that in the box? I'm like, okay. All right, I got to be looking for what's not on the paper. But when you first join, it's kind of hard for an individual to understand what's not on the paper. So the real lesson there for me is you got to have someone that you can send it to who's a couple levels above and experienced in the review process to say, let me figure out what's not here that we're going to be talking about in the room or that we're going to be using to figure out whether you get that promotion or that salary increase. That's not on the page, then let me flag it for you because otherwise you're going to get surprised. So that's, I think that's one thing is you know, having someone in your corner that's kind of looking out for you and then being, I think I'll use the word vulnerable enough to hand them your review and have them go through it with a fine tooth comb and say, hey, here's what I'm seeing that you're not seeing and here's what you need to do as a result of that to you know, advance your career. I think that's probably the biggest piece of that. So when I became a partner and I became part of the CDC at BCG, I basically forced every black person that came into the office, I gave them that speech. I'm like, okay, after your first three to four reviews, I expect you in my office. And if they didn't, then I, I went found them and pulled them into my office and did the same thing to just make sure that they understood what should be on their review and what was there and what wasn't there. I mean, and some people had to have a really tough conversation to say, this review looks fine, but you know, you're probably not gonna get promoted to the next level. And then they're like, what? And then we kind of worked on, here's what you need to do over the next six to 12 months to get on the page, what you need on the page by the 24 month period where your first offer out. Oh, that's great. Cause I mean, I know that even like with my mentor at the firm, I mean, she sees all of everything. 
right? Like I actually like share everything with her and I do get a lot of good feedback from that because you, again, you don't know what you don't know yeah. and you do have to be vulnerable enough to ask and to expose yourself. And be willing to receive that, the feedback. And I also think that, well, the other part is that when you receive the feedback is the ability to then go back and say, I heard you and mm -hmm. here's what I did, and, right? right? right. <laughs> because now they're invested. I, I also feel like when somebody gives you advice and they give you feedback, they're also now invested in your success. So now you have to say, okay, like, what are we? <laughs> what are we <laughs> going to do, do now? That's right. What are we going to do? How are we going to follow through? Right, That's right. That's a great story and example. And the question I have, how do you give that continual feedback or tell us some stories where you've given that continual feedback even before the review happens? I'll go back to that woman I talked about. So I've actually tried to do what she did, but the reverse of that, which is when I have members on my team, I try to get to the point where the feedback is just part of how we talk about stuff. So we come out of the meeting, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that was really good. But you know, that second question that Steve asked, you know, you didn't listen to the full question, you started answering a different question, and then he had to correct you. So what you need to do is sit back, make sure you hear what he said before you start answering, rather than anticipating what he's gonna ask and then getting it wrong, you know, looking like you're not paying attention. I mean, so I just automatically do that. I come out of the meeting or we review a piece of work that someone did. You just try to make the feedback just part of every day. It's, so it's not like, you know, let's, let's schedule 15 minutes to have a feedback session. It's just coming as part of normal course of work. You do something, you hear some feedback on good, bad, here's what you could do better, here's what you should try. Particularly useful for me when I'm in a meeting where I don't have an active role and I actually watch my team and then think about, and I, sometimes I'll jot down some notes so that after the meeting or in a subsequent conversation, I can actually give them a little bit of, here's what I saw that you may not have seen going on in the meeting and here's what you reacted to and you know, did you actually see this part of the meeting that was going on that you seems like you missed and that I think that helps them when they then sit in a meeting to focus on what else is going on as well so so I just try to make that normal part of my my day and then how the, how my team operates hi Paul my question is what are the skills soft skills or key characteristics that you look for in, in the people that you put on your short list of three or four so the number one thing I have on my list is I look for low ego people. So low ego but high performing. More comfortable receiving feedback and then responding to that feedback. I've had some very you know, high ego people um, that I worked with at my previous firm at BCG. So I was career development committee um, representative for this black guy who joined BCG. Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School. He lasted 13 months, right? And if you looked at this guy on paper, you're like, this guy, he's going to be a senior partner here one day. But he had the highest ego I'd ever seen. And so what he didn't realize was 90% of the people here are you. Still, somehow we end up firing 15% of those people a year. So... Just because you, know, you came from Harvard does not mean you're going to automatically make it to the next level. He didn't seek out feedback proactively. He waited for the reviews. He then challenged like what was on the review. No, no, I think I did this. No, I, th I think I did that, which made the review conversation really tough. Then people were less likely to give him real-time feedback or have frank conversations with him, and it just became a downward spiral. And he didn't know what he didn't know and didn't know what he needed to do to succeed. So that's my number one thing is kind of looking for low-ego people. That concludes the fireside chat with Paul Linton, FBI Consulting's Chief Strategy and Transformation Officer. Thank you for listening. As always, I welcome your feedback. Feel free to reach out to me directly or via financeandleadership.com. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.